So, welcome to the Sport in History podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. Uh, the seminar series for 2018-19 is over, but the podcast continues with a series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History seminar series at the IHR. Today, my guest is Professor Jean Williams of the University of Wolverhampton, where she is Professor of Sport in the Institute of Sport and Human Sciences. And Jean has published extensively on the history of sport, including her seminal 2003 work on women's football, a game for rough girls, a history of women's football in England. Jean has been highly influential in helping to develop future researchers, for example, acting as a PhD examiner for last, last week's podcast guest, Raf Nicholson, and I believe um, a future guest, Amanda callan Spen, is having her viva today or tomorrow, Jean, is that right? Tomorrow, yes, the yeah. 11th, yeah. So, hi, Jean, I should hi. say. Hi, Jeff, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, do you remember Raf's uh, viva examination? Yeah, I remember it really well. Um, it, it was a, a, an astonishingly good piece of work. Um, beautifully written and, yeah. and really, really well researched and, uh, and much needed. So I've been aware of some M uh, master's level research uh, of that kind, but RAF really was um, breaking new ground. Oh, that's great to hear. So when we last met at the IHR, you'd come to give a paper about a new heritage project at Silverstone Racetrack. Can you tell us some more about the project and your role in the development of a new museum for British motorsport? Uh, yeah, I first got involved in this project in 2013 and um, more recently I became uh, a non-executive um, director of uh, what is now called um, the Silverstone Experience. So uh, we, we managed to win uh, 9.1 million of heritage lottery funding to build a new museum and heritage um, attraction on the site. Uh, and have match funded that yeah. um, and the overall aim of it again it, it's something that's not hugely known and um, motorsport is relatively neglected in the academic literature but there's this um, motorsport corridor that basically runs from Brooklands down in Surrey up to um, up through Brackley uh, uh, and Oxfordshire and to Silverstone and actually, it's a great British story. We, we now house, house the majority of um, F1 teams within the UK in this yeah. motorsport corridor. And we're wanting to use the history of Silverstone to inspire the next generation of young people into science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine. And have you been very much backed up by the university in getting involved in that project or is it more something that you've been doing as a kind of a consultant? Um, I, I've been mainly involved in developing obviously the historical aspects of the conservation plan and the exhibitions, obviously providing leadership in the um, uh, as uh, one of the non-executive directors but more recently the University of Wolverhampton has um, agreed to become the official higher education partner of the Silverstone project right. working with them on education programs because University of Wolves has its own uh, Formula 3 team oh, wow. um, and, and develops yeah. um, you know different aspects of that kind of engineering background so it's really like a, a kind of a cross um, what do you what would you call it cross department kind of thing where you're working history department or the sport department with yeah. with engineering with, 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 with engineering and they have their own stem outreach officers 
and therefore, um, you know, um, Silverstone's going to be working with a number of education providers, um, obviously across the curriculum. Yeah, because I believe the University of Northampton have some links with Silverstone, don't they? Because I was the, working there last year. Yeah, that's right, um, especially through the... Um, the college that's on site at Silverstone so um, yes yeah and yeah. Do, you, do you see any um, publishing outputs from this work or are you purely looking on looking to develop the museum and maybe that will be for the future well I mean I don't think any of us can do anything these days without <laughs> thinking about impact yeah, can sure. we yeah. so um, the the underpinning research for the exhibitions was published in a contemporary history of women's sport and one of the things that I've been very keen to do um, along with the publication on the Triang um, toys, cars, is to think about the role of women and children in motorsport right. and how motorsport has been promoted historically really to, to those yeah. groups. Um, and more recently, I've um, published some work in a new book that John Hewson, um, Christian Wacker and Kevin Moore are going to bring out about sports and museums, about the kinds of work that we've been doing in, at Silverstone. So thinking about how uh, historians can get involved in doing kind of rigorous public history but also in a way that is easily accessible to the widest possible audience. Yeah. Uh, and when you're thinking about the role of women specifically in motorsport, are you going back to the origins of motorsport and the way in which women were, were there from the beginning? Weren't yeah, 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 absolutely. Particularly, you know, the French women and, and the kind of joy of this research is that they are just such great characters. You know, whether, you, whether you're looking at... Um, Bertha Benz or whether you're looking at um, Ethel Locke King who established um, Brooklyn's with her husband um, and inaugurated the circuit with uh, what was meant to be a procession but provoked the male drivers by leading the procession and yeah. inevitably everybody sped up and it became an impromptu race so I mean you know the stories are just so great and it's very rich source material and and how kind of representative would you see those early pioneers of women as a whole is it is it a story of the elite for those women or or do you see it as more of them being uh, kind of uh, acting as kind of um, examples for, for women lower down the social, the social strata yeah um, I would say you know to to use that phrase that, that Roger Munting used about motor racing, you didn't have to be of the people to be admired by the people. Yeah. And consequently, yes, for sure, um, people like Camille de Gast, uh, the French racer, you know, they've got to be of a certain um, social standing to have access to the resources of either a car or, or like the early um, uh, uh, Aeronauts, they, yeah, you know, yeah. they've got to have access to planes and things like that. Yeah. Inevitably, but it also tells the story of an expanding middle class that that young women who were the daughters of um, garage owners yeah. could associate in motor racing with aristocrats, and therefore it's it's kind of those sort of social nuances that are really interesting. Yeah, that's definitely something I've been trying to argue in my own work is that because I looked at a French magazine called La Vie au Grand Air. Oh, I love which, that magazine. Yeah, yeah, and. and um, then there's some great photographs of women, pioneer women, aviatrixes and also motor racers, isn't there? And, um, and my argument using that magazine is that, uh, okay, they're from the social elite, but the magazine is a mass market magazine. It's the biggest sports magazine in France. And so 
it's it's building dreams for people lower down the social social scale, isn't it? I think. And yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that magazine changed. It, it's not credited enough with the visual change in how sport is presented. Yeah. You know, the photographs were the biggest element of that. They yeah, they yeah. effect they effectively tell stories through the photographs. And um, yeah, representation of women is, is really strong. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the other element of that is that they were kind of presented as, as pioneers. And so therefore, um, I've come across examples of, of young women who could not afford a car, who would nevertheless, you know, buy one of those very large hats, wide brimmed hats, to look like a motorina. Yeah. And, and small boys would follow them down the street and shout, you know, where's your car? Yeah. Um, so the, the look is important as yeah. well as access to the resource. And is, it, is that something you're very much using in the museum is lots of visual materials and sort of things like this? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely beautiful. The other thing I did um, actually when I was still back at De Montfort University is, is look at um, the way that motoring was represented in Vogue and I've yeah. incorporated some of that into the more recent work that I've been doing. So, so magazines uh, that not many sports historians, I will suggest, have, have looked at, like Vogue, uh, that were aimed at, at wealthy women or aspirational women, um, are, are just awash with um, advertisements and suggestions for clothing. And, you know, if you're going to motor down to Deauville to take part in a tennis um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a tennis tournament, this is what you might wear to travelling, yeah. and that made that kind of fashion very aspirational. And because you were you were meant to be seen, of course, in it, and you could be seen in your car in those days. I think that's a really good point to make to people who are researching in sports history: is that don't be too blinkered at looking strictly at sporting publications, isn't it? Because general interest magazines have always got some element of sport in them, haven't they? And it shows you the kind of the wider public interest in, in this kind of stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and that's why I've been tended to be more interested in um, museums, heritage offers, galleries. It, it's like, for example, when I went out to um, the Fashion and Technology Institute in New York, the um, curators gave me the clothes first. Yeah. So you don't get the catalogues and things, you get the clothes first and you have to interpret them as objects. Yeah. And I think that's a really different way of approaching sports history. And what I got from that by looking at it was the continuity between what people wore as equestrians and when they were in coaches and then early on what they wore to, to take part in motorsport. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's basically dust jackets to keep off the dust in summer yeah. and then things to keep warm and dry in the winter. So things like fur and leather and those kind of clothes. Yeah. Um, but this isn't the only heritage project I think you've been involved with recently. Haven't you also been involved in strengthening the National Football Museum's collection on women's football? Uh, yeah, I've been the academic lead for a project called Hidden History of Women's Football. And um, if you can imagine, I have spent most of my career kind of frustrated by a lack of data, yeah. by a lack of resources, for, for all the reasons that we know about the way that women's sport is not collected and, um, uh, and archived in the same way that men's often is. Um, so what happened uh, back in 2013-14 is that we became aware of a collection called the Chris Unger Collection mm -hmm. and Chris was just an ordinary guy who collected women's football memorabilia. Yeah. Anything that came up on eBay and stuff, he would buy it. Yeah. So um, 
there were about 6,000 items um, and unfortunately Chris got um, terminally ill and Kevin Moore as director of the museum wanted to purchase this collection which National Football Museum did with Heritage Lottery funding and then they managed to get Arts Council funding to document and interpret it yeah. to see what it actually meant. And you played a role in doing and, that? And, and I helped yeah. them to, to document and interpret and um, we also held the largest ever conference on women's football, um, academic conference on women's football um, back in uh, 2018 <laughs> on International Women's yeah. Day. So people can visit the museum and see the outcome of, of the work that you did now? Is, the, is yeah. that gallery open now in, um, in the museum? It, it, the, the, the approach that the museum have taken is to kind of integrate the objects with their existing collection so far. Right. Okay. I, I would I would think that going forward, as we as we approach the centenary of the FA ban yeah. in 1921, that they'll be looking to do something yeah. specific with that. Because again, I, I've gone now from having too little data to having too much <laughs> data. I couldn't possibly get through it in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and some listeners might be aware that you uh, you guest edited the last issue of uh, the BSSH's journal Sporting History, yeah, um, which was a special issue, I think. Yeah. 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 So how how did that come about, that came about from this project? It, it came about from the conference that we had related to that project. So yeah. one stipulation of Arts Council fun- funding was that there would be a direct um, output from the the um, project. And obviously we had the conference and then uh, actually this is the first of two special editions because we had so many people who wanted to take part in that particular conference um, that this this is the first part. And then in December, um, I'm guest editing a second special edition right. of remaining papers from that. OK, and that's Sporting History again? Sporting History again. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you give us a flavour of what's in the the current issue, the, the, the first issue that you, yeah. has just come out, I think? Yeah, yeah. I suppose... I suppose three things to say about it are, one is that it's international in scope. So uh, we have Sina Agagard, uh, who a lot of people will know, um, who is looking at um, the way in which Nadia Nadim, uh, who is a, a Muslim player who has moved to uh, Denmark, has become a kind of national hero. Um, we have Benty Skogbang, who's looking at the uh, history of women's football in Norway, and she's also a FIFA referee and is herself an important part of that history. So yeah. it's, it's kind of living history. And then there, there are um, the second thing to emphasize is that there are contributions by museum specialists to reflect the wider work that's going on because the British Library also has a significant collection of Women's Football Association materials. Yeah, there's a chapter by Helena Byrne. Helena Byrne. Or or an article, I should say. Yeah, Yeah. um, and Helen is also doing some work in um, Ireland on oral histories of indoor women's soccer. Um, And... um, We also have something, I I co-wrote something with Belinda Scarlett. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So you co-authored this chapter with Belinda Scarlett and it was on Harry Batts' 1971 England team. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us why the team was significant in the history of women's football in this country? Yeah, um, again, if if you can imagine, until 2017, I'd, I'd heard about this unofficial Women's World Cup in Mexico, in which there were supposedly crowds of 110,000 at the final in the Azteca Stadium. And 
I've been talking about it with other um, specialists in women's football and we kind of wondered if we'd made this up or we kind of wondered if we'd made it bigger than it was somehow or attached an undue importance to it. And certainly until 2017, I couldn't name the England team. As part of the Ungar collection, there was a programme. So I was not only able to name the England team, but the other five teams involved. And so we put out a little bit of social media on the National Football Museum website about how excited we were about this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we got an email from one of the players, Leah Caleb, whose brother had seen this in passing and said, you ought to get in touch with Jean and the National Football Museum. Yeah. Um, and from there on um, uh, International, uh, oh, sorry, on, on National Sporting Heritage Day, 30th of September 2018, we held a reunion of women players. Yeah. And several of the 71 players came along. So I went from not being able to name them to being able to name them to be able to go to dinner with them in the evening, which yeah. was just Because I think your chapter has some oral testimony, doesn't it, from those players? Yeah. Um, again, I, I thought it was really important for them to tell their story in their own words because they'd waited 48 years to tell their story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if I just give the context of one of them... Um, when they came back, not only were they banned and the manager who took them, Harry Bat, banned by the WFA, um, they were very young players, so they went on to play for other teams, but they didn't really talk about it. And just to give an idea of what silence there's been around this is that one of them had got a 30-year-old daughter yeah. who didn't know until last September that her mum ever played football. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. So they felt able to talk about it yeah and now of course they can't stop talking about it because um the bbc breakfast have done a, another reunion tracking down uh the the last three players they've been on the one show they you know they were taken over to the england game versus usa by uefa a special guest to inspire the next generation of young women so they've gone from being really hidden from history to I feel from, talk, from talking to Raf last week, we, we had a similar conversation where we were saying that it's oral history is so important to women's history, isn't it? Because uh, women were mar- marginalised for, for much of their history in terms of the structures of power, weren't they? And so oral history can be a real way of recovering those stories. Do you see, do you see it like that? Yeah, um, yeah football, for example? especially that, that's the real strength. So um, not so much, if I compare football with my motor racing stuff and my, say, hockey stuff, yeah. women's hockey and motor racing, because the social classes of those women yeah. tended to write things down and document it and, and minute it, yeah. um, women's football isn't that. It, it, it's, it was very much made upon the spur of the moment and people trying to act in the moment. Yeah. So if you're looking for archives, you, you're really struggling. Yeah. And do you see any, not necessarily weaknesses with oral history, but... How do you approach oral history? Because there are there are um, methodological problems, aren't there, with oral history? If, for example, you're talking to somebody 40 years later about the experience that they had back then. I mean, how did you go into those interviews with with those uh, with those people? Yeah, I suppose I've let them evolve over time. Um, uh, thankfully, thankfully, I haven't come across it in this situation where any of the players felt especially embittered or 
you know, most of them seem to have gone on and had really nice lives, which, right. is, which is really lovely. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not like it's, it was necessarily painful for them, yeah. which obviously can be quite difficult. Um, when I've done oral histories before and say they are related to family histories that can be quite complex, yeah. then there are obviously areas of sensitivity that, that the contributors don't ne necessarily want you to talk about. And yeah. I think it's just been sensitive to that. Yeah. Um, um, and obviously memory is fallible. So yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I, what I did in, in that particular piece is that I just interviewed the young players. So they were 13, 14, 15. When you talk to the older players who were 24, 25, 26, they're quite a different experience than yeah, the younger yeah. ones. Yeah, well, that's one of the extraordinary things about that team is that they had teenagers, young teenagers playing in that team, going mm -hmm. to Mexico, yeah. which even nowadays would be fairly exciting for the average 14-year-old, <laughs> I would think. Yeah. But in 71, it would have been extraordinary, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's mind-boggling to me uh, what they did. Yeah, I can only think it, it was, from what I've spoken to the players, it was the respect with which their, fam their, their family had for Harry Bat that he went around to the homes of the players. And, and this had been building, don't forget. Harry Bat had been um, in contact with an organisation that had grown in Italy since 68, and he'd taken them on several closer tours. So, logistically, there was a lot of money behind this, like Martini and Rosso... Um, Put, put quite a lot of money behind this so uh, I think because it was so well organised and there was respect for Harry and his wife June and they also took their son Keith as the mascot um, and subsequently I've also been able to meet Keith then um, there, there was real trust, real trust there and um, in the introduction to the special issue you say that you see this collection just as the beginning of a, of a new wave of um, documenting the experience of women footballers um, globally so can you just tell us where you think there is still room to investigate or to to find these hidden histories in the in the, ga in oh, the game it's just it's just absolutely massive because what we realized so we've, we've now had a reunion of the england players from 71 for instance there are academics in argentina mexico france italy and denmark who are putting the other players together. And yeah. you realise it's a transnational history. Um, and I'm also realising that there were important players who were perhaps better players, actually, than the teenagers, who couldn't go because they got proper jobs yeah. and couldn't take a month out to go to Mexico. So there are these transnational histories. There are bigger histories of migration. Um, and there are whole aspects. I mean, my own criticism of my own conference, if you like, um, that, that we ran at National Football Museum was that we didn't really have an Asian input. Okay, we didn't yeah. really have Africanists, yeah. you know, South American specialists. We had a few, but we could have done much more. So, so we, we need global, um, more global awareness from people who are aware also of national context. So lots of potential researchers... Uh, potential areas for research in the future then. Yeah, yeah definitely I, yeah. I thought I was going to leave it alone and, <laughs> and go off and do something completely different but um, it's kind of pulled me back in again just because of the strength of the um, resource material and I, I would say to young researchers and, uh, and, and people who are looking for projects you know somebody should rewrite a game for Rough Girls and just completely demolish what I wrote <laughs> because I was struggling for source material when I wrote that kind of 
um, however many years ago, 16 odd years ago. Well, th this is the beauty of, of working in this discipline, isn't it? Is because, and, you, and I think you refer to it in your introduction as well, is that I'm not saying that your work is, uh, your work was pioneering, but it was the beginning is what you're saying. And then you refer to Richard Holt's uh, seminal work from the 80s, and we talked about it with Raf last week. It was a great book in its day, but lots of flaws that we still need to, we, we need to pull apart and insert new histories into his, his standard account, don't we? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, yeah. I think uh, his, you know, his gaze was very much around male sociability. And I think, you know, as, a, as an academic and as a person, that's what he enjoys. Yeah. But of course, um, you know, the women of 71 um, were absolutely the focus and gaze of this huge organisation logistically. Um, and I think if we neglect that, then um, we, we, we're doing sports history disservice, really, by not being inclusive. And I've also tried to ra raise other areas where, you know, I need to be self-critical and say, you know, we, we don't really understand that much about um, transport. Mm. Um, I've written a little bit about it, but we don't really understand that much about it. We don't really understand that much about disability sport um, and, and a variety of disabilities. So um, I, I think it's just about trying to be inclusive in our practice and our kind of approach. Yeah, I mean, this is something we're trying to encourage people to present at the seminar is... Um giving uh, having a look at sport and minorities in that way and we had Tom Weir speaking last year about intellectual disability yeah I'm hoping to get him to come along and talk to us about that because we didn't manage to capture that one when he yeah. when he did it but it's such an interesting point that yeah we've got to move on from just looking at it at sport and men and women and look at look at other ways of looking at sports history as well yeah it's, de it's definitely more kind of intersectional um, politics and uh, um, you know ethnicity and, and race too um, and um, just understanding the ways in which that's kind of changed over time yeah so i know you've got to get a train so i won't keep you much longer <laughs> but maybe to finish off you can tell us what you're up to now i suppose the museum is the big thing is it the museum is the big thing that is uh holding my focus at the moment um and it's kind of quite interesting trying to open the doors on a 19.2 million pound attraction um with the kind of um comments that are happening around potentially the last um, F1 race yeah. at, at Silverstone. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that will be open in the autumn. And uh, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping to do, we already had some um, sporting heritage study visits there, and I'm hoping to have more, more study visits to kind of talk about the education programs there. Um, immediately, obviously, my concern is Amanda tomorrow, um, and yeah, Jeff, good luck, Amanda. <laughs> Jeff Hill is going to be her uh, external examiner, and Kath Lafley her internal. Then on Sunday, I'm hoping to see Lewis Hamilton win the British Grand Prix, um, and after that, um, I'm doing a heritage project with British Judo in the approach to Commonwealth competitions, oh, a kind wow. of heritage scoping exercise because their their offices are very close to uh, where I work in Warsaw. Um, second special edition out in December and then an article with uh, Chris Stride on Half Man Half Biscuit All I Want for Christmas is a Duke Prague Away Kit That's quite, 
quite a lot. <laughs> quite, quite a lot. <laughs> I'm amazed that you could find half an hour to come and chat to me today. But uh, thanks, Jean. Thanks for joining me for the podcast. And if you want to find out more about Jean's special issue of Sport in History, you can find it via the BSSH's website, sporthistory.org. But for now, um, that's, that's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Jean. Yeah, goodbye. thank you, Jeff. Thanks. Bye.